Sholem Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with Shiri Sandler, the director of the Auschwitz Jewish Center at the New York Museum of Jewish Heritage. Shiri is the curator of A Town Known as Auschwitz, The Life and Death of a Jewish Community, a visiting exhibit that is now on view at the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts, in our Breckner Gallery. The exhibit presents the rich history of the town, which goes much deeper than the notorious camps. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you for having me. Um, so I want to ask if you can share a bit about the thinking behind the exhibit and how you imagined and basically how you curated it. Sure. We started thinking about this exhibit a long time ago, you know, I think 2009, 2010. We wanted to present the history of Ashvanshim. You know, we have our affiliate, the Auschwitz Jewish Center in Ashvanshim, and we know from our experiences with the center that people don't really understand the whole history of Ashvanshim. They know this place only as Auschwitz the camp, not as Auschwitz the town or Ashvanshim the town. And we have this deep connection to the town because of the center and wanted to bring it to New York. Our goals were really twofold. The first was to give people a little bit more color, a little bit more context to their image of pre-war Jewish life in Poland. I think that people tend to have one of two images when they imagine this time period. They think either of whatever their family members happen to live through in Poland, and they take that singular experience and extrapolate it to the whole, when in fact Poland is actually geographically rather diverse in terms of historical experience, or they picture Anatevka from Fiddler on the Roof, right? The shtetl, constant anti-Semitism, separation from neighbors, poverty, only speaking Yiddish, and they, that's what they imagine for all of Poland. So we wanted to give them a glimpse into a town that was really neither of those things that would help them understand a little bit more about the breadth of this history. And Oshvenshim is interesting to people, not for that history, but because it becomes Auschwitz. So we could use the idea of it becoming the place of the death camp as an entry to a much broader history. Our second goal was really to introduce people to the idea that there are towns behind these camps. The camps didn't just spring up out of nowhere. They were placed upon existing locales with existing histories, and in many cases, for example, the case of Oshanshim, long Jewish histories. So when we decided to bring the exhibition to be, you know, curated, created, um, we really wanted to tell the story of the town itself and then the story of the town sort of as a microcosm for other stories of Polish Jewish life. Uh, what well, I should say that um, the the exhibit is now installed here at the Yiddish Book Center and I've mm-hmm. been through it and it is really a powerful um powerful exhibit um and it, interesting in that it does take us through the history of the town beginning in 1723 and i i think it would be interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about that history which has deep jewish roots yes and um, the town has long jewish roots jews came to the area in the mid 1500s and it also has long german roots the town was founded by 1300 and even from that time it had a contested identity. Germans always called it Auschwitz in their own language, and they saw it as a German place that German dukes had 
had created, whereas the Poles called it Oświęcim, or the people who would become, you know, Poland, called it Oświęcim, and they said, no, Polish dukes brought the Germans in, invited them in to settle the place, and therefore it's originally Polish. So it has this multinational history for a long time, and a lot of what made it appealing to Poles, to Germans, to settlers, to Jews, at that time, are what makes it appealing to the Nazis later. You know, Oświęcim is located on the confluence of two rivers, the Wisła River and the Sowa River. And rivers in that time period function as the lines of trade. So Oświęcim was really well located for outsiders to come in, which meant it was always a little bit more cosmopolitan than some of the rural places around it. And it also had a lot of natural resources. There's good farming, there's coal nearby, there's salt mines nearby. So it really is a very appealing place. And, you know, Jews come there, as I said, in the mid-1550s, um, and their life is its not completely easy. You know, you'll see in the exhibition, when all of you listeners come to see it, um, that we have documents showing both opportunity and opposition during this time. And life's also really unstable because it's ruled by a series of what are called privileges, which means that every man who comes to power can determine what the rights of the Jews are. Mm-hmm. So he might be friendly to the Jews and allow them to rent inns, rent land, produce alcohol, uh, sell their wool, and then he dies 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, and the next duke isn't so friendly to the Jews, and Jewish life and Jewish economy has to contract. So you really have these periods where the Jewish community is trying to grow, but they're not able to. Then on the other hand, you have this incredible moment um, in the 1580s where a local Polish nobleman named Jan Piotrzewski donates some of his own land to the Jews of the region so that they can build a synagogue and a cemetery. So even from the earliest time period, you see both sides of Jewish-Christian interaction there. Now, all of this is going to change when um, Oświęcim becomes part of Galicia. So when the series of partitions come through and Poland is divided up, into the Austro-Hungarian, the Prussian, and the Russian partitions. Um, many of us know the term Galicia from our own families, from the idea of uh, Galicianer being used as a derogatory name, referring to those who are more rural, those who are more impoverished. Um, and Oshantian falls into this region, which complicates Jewish life, um, as well as Catholic life. You know, it's a new country now. It's a German-speaking country. Um, and things again, change. And this is part of the constant story of Oshvanshim, that there's always someone different in power, and Jewish life has to adjust, and town life has to adjust. But not to tell the whole story at once, but in 1867, things begin to change for Oshvanshim. And that's when we, that's what we think of as the beginning of the golden era, where Jewish life really begins to thrive, and you get this incredible pluralistic, beautiful Jewish community that is really brought to a close in 1939. Oh, it's specifically there are some f- photographs that just were really, I mean, it's not a scene that is of great significance, but in the context of the show it is. The Hearst Hotel, you know, mm-hmm. it's just a typical New Year's Eve gathering. You yes. see, you know, an everyday scene, Jews and non-Jews celebrating in 1925, um, I think the 1933 photograph of the children on a school outing in the woods, um, distinguished by their hats. And I wondered if you can 
talk a little bit about, you know, sort of how you came to find these photographs and in curating them, you know, the importance of the stories that they convey in very subtle but profound ways. Yes, I think I think you're picking up on something really important. So those pictures, those two you described, the one of the New Year's Eve party at the Hertz Hotel and the other of the school children on a field trip, um, both actually come from the same place. So there was a man named Jacob Hennenberg who was a survivor from a Schwanschim, and after the war, he decided to really commemorate the history of his town. Now, Jacob Hennenberg was related to most of the important people in Oshvenshim. His family had long roots there, and he um, was related to two different town council members. And he spent the rest of his life collecting images from other survivors, from anywhere he could find them. When we started to put together the exhibition, I put out a call to his granddaughter, Julia. Jacob was still around at this time, but Julia had the family photos. And she came down to the museum. She lives lived nearby, actually, until she moved to Ohio. But she came down to the museum with a suitcase, an actual rolling suitcase hmm. of images. Her grandfather's collection had over 800 images wow. of Oshanshim in them. We took, I think, about 250 into our collection, creating this exhibition. And I will tell you, the whole exhibition has about 56 images in it. Our database of images, when we were building this, researching it, had over 1,100. And most of them fall during this period of the New Year's Eve party and that school trip, because the pictures we have are largely family images mm-hmm. of life, of, you know, Zionist groups, of uh, the Rebbe's visit to the town, of these moments that people wanted to remember in their own lives. Right? They're not mainly images of the camp. They're mainly images of family life. So this particular picture of New Year's Eve at the Hertz Hotel. What I think is so magical about it really is the fashion. These people are dressed like they're out of some, you know, Metro Golden Meyer movie from right, the 1920s. Exactly. The women all have the same haircut, the men are wearing these incredible suits and tuxes, and it's a really luxe looking image. You know, that this is this is a rich life in more ways than one. And I think it it fights against that sort of shtetl image we have. Oh, of a- Polish Jews? Absolutely. I mean, you use the word cosmopolitan, which is a perfect word, um, having seen these images, because you get a sense of the vibrancy of the life there. Also, just that you had so many different, you know, you know, people living together. As you say, there were, mm-hmm. you know, there was an Orthodox community, a Zionist community, mm-hmm. a Christian community, but there but they were all there, and, and you're seeing all of this chronicled in these everyday pictures. Right, right. These are, and I think that's what's beautiful about them, that so many of these are actually posed images, but they're not posed for us. They're mm-hmm. posed for them. You know, this holiday party picture is, it was, you can imagine it being on everyone's mantelpiece, that when they talk to their children about who their friends are, they look at this picture and they see, you know, Aunt Bella next to Aunt Fella, and and that it's about human connection. It's the same thing, really, with this picture. <laughs> excuse me, of the boys in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a school trip. Um, this picture is a, a school outing, and you can see in this picture Jewish and non-Jewish children together. So Jacob gave us this picture as well, and Jacob described it this way. He said, "The boys in the tall hats um, are observant Jews." boys in the flat hats are progressive Jews, and the boys who aren't wearing hats are, are Catholic. 
And what I love about that is that you look at the picture, and once you realize who's who by the way they're dressed, you realize, first of all, how very Jewish this town is. And second of all, that the boys are all intermingled. Now, there's of course, there's some clumps of Catholic boys and there's some clumps of Orthodox boys, but they're really all intermingled. And it shows you what that kind of life means. Because boys who go to school together, as we all know from our own lives, it's much harder to have blind hatred when you actually know someone who's different from you. Mm-hmm. right? When they get to know each other as individuals, friendships are possible, all sorts of relationships are possible. Um, the other thing about this picture, which you would never know if you just saw it without a label, is they look like they're just in the woods, which they are. They're in the woods outside of Oshvanshin, but these woods belong to a local village, very very small village, named Bzezinka, much better known by its German name of Birkenau. So this village, this forest, is destroyed by the Nazis to put up the Birkenau camp. So you're looking at this place and these people before the Holocaust changes everything in this picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a moment caught in time, and you as the viewer know the outcome, which is very profound. Exactly. Um, and I, you know, I think it's important that you included the selection of um, images from 1939 to 1944 uh, that really represent what most people know as being more related to Auschwitz. Um, right. And uh, was that a hard decision? I mean, it, or was that always part of the arc of the exhibit? That was always part of the arc of the exhibit, but there were some really hard choices in there because we wanted this exhibition not to be the story of Auschwitz. We wanted it to be the story of the Jews of Auschwitz. And so when we told the story of the development of the camp, we had to tell it through the lens of what was happening to the people of this town at this time. And for me, having been to the camp 15 or 16 times, having spent a good deal of the last nine years in Oshanshim and getting to know the place and getting to know these families as well and their stories, it was really important to me that we keep showing people and faces, individuals, as much as we could. That's also very much part of the way the Museum of Jewish Heritage tells its stories, that we want you to be thinking about and looking at individuals as much as you can. And in this time period, that's actually really difficult to do in the photos. It's, first of all, difficult to find photos that are individual in that way. Mm-hmm. And second, emotionally, it's difficult to look at those pictures. So there's a point at the end of the war period where you switch from seeing the story of the Jews of Oshvanshim to looking at the story of the Jews of Auschwitz. And it's a moment that historian Deborah Dwork, who is on our advisory committee, called uh, the break where the metropolis of Auschwitz becomes the necropolis of Auschwitz. Because if our story is the story of these people in this place at this time, we're telling the story of the Jews of Auschwitz, of the Jews of Auschwitz, those Jews are no longer. And now the people we're looking at are the ones deported there instead Mm -hmm. of the ones who have always lived there. It was also very important to me and to most of us, but especially for me as the grandchild of survivors, and to know that if an Auschwitz survivor came into this exhibition, they would see something that represented their experience. Even though that's not the story here, Mm -hmm. I wanted them to see something. But you you can't really tell the story of Auschwitz in the space that we had here, right? You can't tell it in the space of the entire Museum of Jewish Heritage, really. It's an enormous story. So we, we needed to, again, ground it in individuals. And that's why when you have those last four pictures 
in the exhibition, where you see um, Isaac Silberger in his mugshot from Auschwitz I. You see the mass transports of Jews coming into Birkenau, and then you see the Jewish bodies being burnt by other Jews, and then you see the SS. That was our way of giving the story of Auschwitz through individuals, Mm -hmm. through people, making you look at faces. And in this case, the faces of Auschwitzim Jews, the faces of other Jews, the faces of victims, and the faces of Nazi perpetrators. Well, um, you know, again, viewing the exhibit has really given me an informed understanding of the history of this Jewish community, which, again, goes way far back um, and brings it to the present where I was more familiar with it. Um, And I wondered if you were surprised by your takeaway um, the first time you viewed the installation, having worked on it and shepherded it through. Yes, actually. Um, So I'm not a curator. I'm not an exhibition person. Mm -hmm. I'm an educator. I'm an administrator. I'm a fundraiser. I'm historically trained. But this isn't what I do, and I'm actually, embarrassingly, really not a visual person. Um, I'm a word person. So building this exhibition was challenging for me, and thankfully I was part of an incredible team who knew a lot more than I did about how to build an exhibition, and I just knew a lot more about a Schwanschim, so we were a good combination. And when it started to go up, I don't know how to describe it. It was a little bit like watching something being born, because I'd never created anything physical before. Um, I'd been involved in a lot of events and a lot of education programs, but to actually see the walls go up and the pictures get hung on the walls, to pull back the brown paper as we unwrapped the photos from the printers, because these are all reproductions, was was really incredible. Um, And I, I loved being in that space, and I was surprised at what it felt like to be in there. I always say to my students that when you go to a place like Auschwitz, there is this indescribable power of place. There is something you get from being in a place that you cannot get from a book, that you cannot get from anything else. But I don't think I realized until this exhibition that an exhibition has a power of place as well, that I could know this text by heart. I could have written most of this text. I did write most of this text. But seeing it on the wall and being immersed in the history of Ashwanshim and in the way it was mounted here, it was very much being immersed in the town because we were able to produce wall-sized murals of buildings from the town. So you felt like you were walking into the market square. That was powerful in a way I, I hadn't anticipated, that I didn't know was possible. And so being a part of being able to create that was really marvelous. Well, I thank you for the work that you and the others put into it. Um, it's really a great exhibit that we are thrilled to have here at the Yiddish Book Center. And we look forward to welcoming you here sometime soon. Thank you. I look forward to being there, and we're, we're thrilled to have it there as well. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Bleichfeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.